Hello and welcome to the fifth episode of the Women in the Word at Uni podcast. My name is Rachel and I am delighted to open God's Word with you today. Well, last night I went out and I had dinner with a group of friends. It's a group of six of us. We used to be work colleagues and so we try to get together every couple of months for a meal and a good catch up. Now, one of my friends was sharing some photos and stories of a recent holiday that she and her husband went on. It was a pretty epic holiday. They did a massive cruise, which included visits to Rome and the Amalfi Coast, and then right over to New York and Halifax, Nova Scotia. As she shared her stories, another friend told of how she and her husband are planning a trip to Italy in two years' time to celebrate a significant birthday. Meanwhile, another friend, who I think has managed to visit every continent on Earth, including Antarctica, lamented that her only recent trip had been to Sydney. I didn't mention the fact that I haven't set foot on an aeroplane in four and a half years. Now, travel is great and exciting, isn't it? But if you're planning a visit overseas, one thing you'll probably come across is the need for travel insurance. It will add to the cost of your trip, but you'll be strongly advised to buy it. Because... If you find yourself in need of medical attention or a sudden evacuation home, you'll probably need the help of an insurer to cover the cost. There's even a saying, if you can't afford travel insurance, you can't afford to travel. I know someone who recently had to be hospitalised while overseas. The hospital bill equated to over 60000 Australian dollars. Now, thankfully, the travel insurer paid it. Having travel insurance costs money, but not having it could cost a lot more. Now, travel insurance is not the only thing that not spending money on something could end up costing you more than if you had spent the money in the first place. Maybe you don't want to pay for petrol because it's really expensive right now, but then your car breaks down as a result. The damage you've done to the motor is going to cost you more than paying for the petrol in the first place would have. I once tried to save some money by doing a touch-up on my roots myself instead of going to the hairdresser to have my foils redone. Now, let me tell you, I paid a lot more than I intended in the end. Well, what about when it comes to following Jesus? As we're going to see today, following Jesus is costly, but not following him is costly too. Am I willing to pay the cost of following Jesus? Or can I afford not to? Well, keep those questions in mind as we read the Bible together. We're going to spend some time seeing what God's word has to say to us and trying to find some answers. Today we're looking at Mark chapter 8, verses 27 to 9, verse 13. Please read along with me in your Bible or your Bible app. I'm reading from the New International Version. We're reading Mark 8, verses 27 to 9, verse 13. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, Who do people say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, You are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. 
What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud, This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, Why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. Here we see that Jesus and his disciples are traveling. They're heading about 40 kilometers north from Bethsaida to the villages near Caesarea Philippi. When you're traveling with other people, you tend to have a prolonged period of time to chat and talk about things, and Jesus takes up this opportunity. Who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. God's people, the Jews, were waiting for a savior, a rescuer to come. For hundreds of years, prophets had been bringing messages from God to the people, telling them that this rescuer was coming. Most recently, at the start of the book of Mark, in chapter 1, verses 2 to 4, we find that John the Baptist came in fulfillment of prophetic messages, not as the rescuer, but as one who would prepare the way for him, one who would let people know of his pending arrival. Evidently, the people think that Jesus is another such messenger, telling people that God is sending his rescuer, a saviour to his people. But what about you, he asked in verse 29, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. This is a hugely significant statement. It's the climax of, climax of Mark so far, in fact. If you listened to last week's podcast, you would have learned that the disciples, Jesus' 12 closest followers, among them Peter, didn't yet understand who Jesus was. They didn't get it yet. But now Peter does. Peter realizes who Jesus is. The people think that Jesus is just one who points to the coming Savior, the coming King, the coming Messiah. No, realizes Peter, Jesus is not pointing to the King, the Savior, the Messiah. He is that King. He is that Savior. He is the Messiah. He is the one who the prophets have been telling people about for hundreds of years. He is the one who John the Baptist was preparing the way for. In just four words, Peter speaks one of the most profound truths that any of us can ever understand. He says one of the most crucial things any of us can ever say about Jesus. You are the Messiah. We might expect Jesus to give Peter a pat on the back for this, to cheer even. Yes, Peter, you finally got it. You finally understand. But he doesn't, does he? Instead, he warns them not to tell anyone about him in verse 30, and he goes on to teach that he will suffer, and he'll even be killed. 
You see, the Jewish people had a particular expectations of what this Messiah would be. They expected a warrior. They expected one who'd come and overthrow the rule of the Romans. They expected a militant king. Jesus knows this and he doesn't want the wrong impression to spread about him. Peter goes from a place of misunderstanding to understanding Jesus' identity. And now Jesus takes the time to dispel the misunderstandings the disciples might have as to what the Messiah will do and what his reign will look like. And it's not at all what they expect. So much so that we're told that Peter takes him aside and rebukes him in verse 32. A suffering Messiah just does not fit his picture. Get behind me, Satan, says Jesus in verse 33. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. The human expectation is that glory will come through a display of power, not suffering. But you see, the prophets didn't just speak of the Messiah as one who would come with militant victory. Certainly they spoke of a glorious king. Notice in verse 31 that Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. Well, this draws back to the prophet Daniel. Now, you might, you might remember him from Daniel in the lion's den. It's the same guy. In Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 to 14, he brought a message in which he referred to one called the Son of Man. We're told he was given authority, glory and sovereign power and an everlasting kingdom. When Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, he is affirming that this is him. He is the one who will come and will be given this authority, glory and sovereign power. He is the Messiah who will reign. But as well as this picture of glory, the prophets also portrayed a path of suffering. What Jesus goes on to say about this Messiah fulfills another prophecy, this time that of the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 52 to 53. He is one who will be exalted and glorified, but who would undergo immense suffering. As Isaiah 53 verse 3 to 5 says this, He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and, he, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Yes, the Saviour would save and he would be glorified, but his salvation is not one of militant salvation from political oppression, and his glory is not that of a triumphant warrior. His path would not be one of sweeping in and claiming victory as his divine right, even though it was. Jesus' death as the suffering servant of Isaiah flew in the face of the people's expectations, but Jesus' death as the suffering servant is precisely what we need to save us, because when he died, he did it for us. Isaiah talks about the servant being pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. By his wounds we are healed. Jesus suffered not in spite of the fact that he was the Messiah, but because he was the Messiah. When Jesus died, he didn't look like the Messiah, the Saviour that people expected, but he was being precisely the Messiah, the precisely the Saviour that we need. The Messiah's glory comes through suffering, not power. Our salvation cost him dearly. Our salvation is expensive. And Jesus goes on to tell us that following him as the Messiah will be costly for us too. Verse 34, And he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciples must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. The cross, it's an instrument of execution. It's the means of Jesus' death. 
And if we're to follow Jesus, if we're to trust him to be our our saviour, our Messiah, we need to be willing to follow in his footsteps. And that means following in his path of suffering, even to death. Verse 35 to 38, For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Following Jesus will be costly. It will mean being willing to give up my life for him. If setting myself up for a good life now is more important to me than following Jesus, ultimately I will lose my life. If I don't follow Jesus now because I make it a higher priority to pursue my career, or if I'm in a relationship with someone who's not interested in Jesus and they want me to choose between them and I choose that relationship over following Jesus, or if I don't want to follow Jesus now because I'm afraid of what my family or friends will think of me, I will ultimately lose my life. I won't have eternal life with Jesus. I won't be saved from my sins. Is this a price I'm willing to pay? Following Jesus is costly. It might cost us friendships. It might cost us relationships. It might cause people to reject us. It might mean that people say horrible things to or about us. For some people, it even involves physical suffering, even death. But Jesus is saying that this is the path of following him. It is costly. It is extremely expensive. The question is, can I afford not to? Because as costly as it is to follow Jesus, it's even more costly not to. Following Jesus might cost us everything we have in this life, but we will be rewarded with an eternal future, secure with Him. Not following Jesus might save us some cost now, but it will cost us dearly in the afterlife. It means that when Jesus returns to judge between those who have followed Him and those who haven't, those who haven't followed Him will be eternally separated from Him, eternally damned. Will I pay the price of following Jesus? Or can I afford not to? And he said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. Says chapter 9 verse 1. Here is the paradox of the good news of Jesus. His kingdom and power is shown most clearly in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Likewise, for those of us who follow him, the path of glory is not is not by seeking the glorious life now. It is a path of following the lead of our suffering Saviour, who was most glorified by suffering and then rising from the dead. But before then, even before his death and resurrection, some of Jesus' disciples are going to catch a glimpse of his glory. We read in chapter 9 verses 2 to 8 that Jesus took Peter, James and John up a mountain. This is a scene of glorious imagery. Jesus is transfigured. In verse 3, his clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And later in verse 7, then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. It doesn't get much more glorious than that. The voice of God Almighty affirming Jesus' identity as his son. With Jesus are Elijah and Moses, two key figures in the Old Testament, two important people who brought messages from God to the people. Jesus is likened to them, but we see here that he is far superior. He is the only one who is transfigured. He's the only one pronounced the Son of God. This is a momentous occasion. 
Yet again, it's one which the disciples are to keep to themselves until Jesus has risen from the dead, in verse 9. But they're a bit baffled as to what rising from the dead might mean. They may well still have been questioning whether Jesus in fact had to die. Couldn't he be like Elijah, the prophet who didn't actually die, who God simply took up to heaven? Verse 11 says, And they asked him, Why did the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Well, another prophet, Malachi, as we read in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, says this, See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. In other words, before God would come to judge people, the prophet Elijah would return. Verses 12 to 13, Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. Jesus is saying that Elijah has come. John the Baptist was that Elijah, that one who would come to prepare people for the coming judgment of God, the coming arrival of his Saviour, his Messiah. John the Baptist has come and he too has suffered. He was imprisoned and beheaded, we read in Mark chapter 6. The path of announcing Jesus coming as the Messiah was one of suffering. The path of being the Saviour, the Messiah, is one of suffering and rejection. So too, the path of following Jesus is one of suffering. Following Jesus is costly. It's expensive. Am I willing to pay the price? Can I afford not to pay this price? Because following Jesus is the only way to be saved. He's the only way to be made right with God. Following him is costly, but it will cost us even more not to follow him. But the trouble for us sometimes is that it's hard to see the cost of not following Jesus. The cost of not following Jesus in some ways might seem invisible to us. If we're in good health now, if life is comfortable, if death is not seeming at all imminent, the thought of an eternity without Jesus is probably not in the forefront of our minds. So it's very easy to focus on the visible, to focus on what we can see. And if we're thinking about the suffering that might accompany following Jesus, the potential rejection from those we love, the ostracization from those who are very, very visible to us, then it's not hard to see why we might choose them, why we might choose the path that is much easier for now, the path that makes a priority of the visible over the invisible. But you see, the invisible will come. What we can't see now will come right before each of us one day with unavoidable force. We will each face God one day. Jesus says in chapter 8 verse 38, If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Jesus is speaking of the day when he returns to judge to sort out those who have followed him from those who haven't. Do we want his shame or his kindness? Do we want his acceptance or his rejection? Choosing the path that will lead to his acceptance then is costly now. By contrast, the path that is cheaper now will mean we pay the ultimate price on that day, and that price is his rejection of us. Am I really willing to pay that price? And we have to choose one or the other. We can't sit on the fence on this. We either follow Jesus or we don't. If you're overseas and you have an accident, the travel insurance company is not going to help you if you say, I was thinking about signing up, I like your policy, it looks good, I just never paid the premium. You cannot sit on the fence, you must decide, you must choose. Well, what about if you have decided to follow Jesus? Living in Australia, we're free to be Christians, so following Jesus doesn't usually mean death for Christians in Australia. 
but what costs might you have to be willing to pay? Are you willing to face a lesser mark from a tutor who's made it quite clear they have no time for Christianity by standing up for Jesus in class? Are you willing to forego a relationship with someone who doesn't follow Jesus? Are you willing to be laughed at by your friends for telling them that you follow Jesus? Here's another question for you. Are you willing to give up your money so that other people can hear about Jesus? Are you willing to give to support gospel ministry and give until you really feel it? Not just giving your leftover money, but giving to the point that it means you can't afford to buy your lunch at uni anymore, or you need to make some sacrifices when it comes to the clothes you buy or the number of movies you go and see. Will you make costly sacrifices so that other people can hear about Jesus? Because the good news of Jesus is worth any cost at all. And Jesus commands us to tell others about him. When Jesus had risen from the dead, he appeared to his disciples. And one of the things he said to them, which we read in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20, is this. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is why when in the passage we read today from Mark, there are a few points at which Jesus tells people to keep quiet about him. We can't understand these to be instructions for us not to tell people about him. Those were in specific instructions to a specific group at a specific time. The instruction for us is to tell people about Jesus. The instruction for us as we read in Mark 8 verse 38 is to not be ashamed of Jesus. Telling people about Jesus might be costly for us if it's us doing the telling. It might cost us friendships or at least some questioning looks. Or it might not. You might be pleasantly surprised. And giving money so that other people can tell people about Jesus is costly in monetary terms. But that's the path of following Jesus. It is a costly path. Now that's certainly not to say that giving money to ministry helps us be more saved than if we don't. Salvation is by trusting Jesus alone. But trusting Jesus and following him means we are willing to make costly decisions, to give of ourselves for his glory. And he is glorified when people learn about him and follow him. The path to salvation is an expensive one. Will you pay that price? Can you afford not to? Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for sending your son. He paid the price of his own life in order that we might be forgiven. And it cost you too. You watched your own son, your only beloved son, suffer and die. No parent ever wants to see their child suffer, yet you paid the ultimate price so that we might be forgiven. Thank you, God. Please help us to see that there is no price we can pay that outweighs what you have already paid. Please help us to see the cost of following you as completely worth it. Thank you that your word tells us that it will be worth it. Amen. If you have any questions about the Bible or the message you've just heard, please feel free to email me at ra.com.